and hope for the scattered. And we've definitely been scattered right now with all that's going on with the virus. We didn't meet in person for a while, and we still have several people who aren't with us. So we're definitely scattered. But we've seen so far uh, in this book that Peter is talking to believers who are scattered. It's believers who are in modern-day Turkey, what we know now as Turkey, and these are Gentiles, so they don't have a Jewish background. And we've seen Peter addressing a lot of things. We've seen him addressing holiness, a call to holiness for believers. We've seen Peter uh, address suffering and persecution, which was going on during that time period. And it wasn't necessarily governmental persecution, as Matthew talked about, but it was just sort of a cultural persecution of these Christians living among Romans and Greeks who did not call Jesus Lord. And so they, they faced this persecution. Um, and we've also addressed how does this apply to us as Americans. We live in a country where we're free to worship um, as we choose. And so it's a little bit, I don't know, it, sometimes it seems like we're not facing the same things that these people were facing at this time, but we definitely face different types of persecution whether it's on a social level or just living our lives differently than our culture, which, which can be very difficult. Um, and we live in a fallen world where there's a lot of pain and suffering, and so as Christians, how do we, how do we deal with that? Um, so I was thinking about what I was going to talk about today looking at this passage, and uh, I saw on Facebook Matthew and Abby were talking about a time where you drove really far to see Abby for like an hour or two hours or something like that drove six hours to see her for two hours, something crazy like that. And I thought about this time when Lexi and I were dating. So Lexi was working for a summer camp, and she was traveling all around to different places, and she was in South Georgia, and I hadn't seen her for like two months. And I was going on a mission trip to Costa Rica, and we were flying in and out of Atlanta, so my thought was, all right, I'm going to fly back to Atlanta. I'm already halfway to South Georgia, and I'll go see Lexi. So that was the plan. So in Costa Rica on this mission trip, and it's the last day, and we're doing some sightseeing, and I got really sick, sickest I've ever been in my whole life. I'll spare you the details. You probably don't want to know the details, but it was to the point of I literally passed out sitting down. They were calling doctors over, like we're in a mall food court. I was like hyperventilating because I was freaked out. I didn't know what was going on. They were pouring bottles of water over my head. It was really dramatic, and um, you know, I, I realized, okay, they, a doctor was talking to me, and it came to my mind, all right, I'm supposed to go home tomorrow, and I'm going to see Lexi tomorrow, and if I go to the hospital in Costa Rica tonight, I'm probably not going home tomorrow. So I got it together enough, and I talked everyone out of taking me to the hospital in Costa Rica. And so go back to where we're staying. I go to sleep, and they're like, we'll see how you feel in the morning, if you can get on an airplane and go home. And woke up the next morning, and I was feeling better, but I was really weak from just being sick the day before. And I'm like, nope, going to the airport, I'm going home. So waiting in line in security, I can barely stand up because I'm so weak. I mean, I'm sitting on my carry-on luggage, leaning up against walls. And uh, we finally get back to Atlanta, make it on the airplane. And everyone's like, all right, you know, get, you know, it was a great trip. And I'm like, all right, see you guys later. I'm going to South Georgia to see Lexi. And they're like, what? You are not driving to South Georgia to see Lexi. You, are, you just were really sick and you're very weak. And everyone thought I was crazy. But... I did it anyway because I love Lexi and I knew the joy that I was going to get from seeing her and it didn't matter what anyone else said and what seemed really crazy to them, it made perfect sense to me. And if Lexi would have known how sick I was, she would not have let me come see her, by the way. She had no clue. I just said I wasn't feeling good because I knew that she wouldn't let me. But all that to say, 
I think that's sort of like the Christian life in that as believers, our lifestyle seems pretty crazy to those who don't believe and who don't have Christ in their lives. And so it makes perfect sense to us the reason we do the things we do, but to people on the outside, it just seems crazy. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, And we're going to answer this question. My ultimate goal is to answer this question. Is the Christian life worth it? So we're going we're gonna to go through this whole chapter 5, but that's the, that's the ultimate question we want to answer. Is the Christian life worth the cost? Um, last week, we've been warned in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, hey, when suffering and trials come your way, don't be surprised. Like we have been told, it's coming. Uh, we know that the Christian life is not easy. We know that we've been earlier in 1 Peter, we've, we see a call to holiness Holiness is not easy. It is not easy to live a life set apart, different than the, than the culture. Um, we know that we are saved by grace through faith, but we also know that we're called to be obedient as Christians. And it's hard to be obedient. It is not easy. Our flesh wants to do what our flesh wants to do. Um, and so it's really, really difficult to, be, to live the Christian life. So that, that asks the question, what's the point? Why, why do it if it's so hard? So that's, that's the question that we're going to answer. So we're going to read this, this uh, passage, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you want to turn there, it'll be on the screen. I'm going to read it all the way through, and then we're going to dive into it. All right. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your fate, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord, thank you so much for giving us a guidebook to life. And Father, we just thank you so much for your spirit, that you have not left us alone, Lord. I just pray that today you would teach us something. Father, I pray that you would speak through me. And Lord, I just pray that ultimately we would be able to answer the question, that yes, the Christian life is worth it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So the first few verses here talk about elders. And so you might ask, what is an elder? Well, an elder is a leader of the church. So that's God's structure for leading the church is through elders. And so Matthew, as our pastor, is an elder. Neil is an elder at our church. Stephen was an elder here. You might say, well, I'm not an elder, so what's the point of learning about elders? In the body of Christ, we all have different functions and roles, but it's very important for us to understand all of those, even if it's not what we're called to do. So we're going to briefly talk about that for a second. 
So in verse 1 here, we see Peter saying, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So we see two things about Peter here. Number one, he's an elder. He's a leader of the church. And we know that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. Peter was one of, it was in Jesus' inner circle. And so he has seen the ultimate suffering and the ultimate persecution that comes with following Christ. Uh, he knows that it can cost everything, just like it did for Jesus. Um, and then, as well, as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And that's really important, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. So, in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So that's the two jobs of elders, to shepherd and to exercise, over, to exercise oversight. So, I kind of, in easier terms... That is to feed and to lead. Shepherds take care of the body. So uh, the elder's job is to feed the body of Christ and to lead the body of Christ. Um, and Peter kind of gives three exhortations here to elders as they do those two things, as they feed and as they lead. The first we see in verse 2, not under compulsion but willingly. Not under compulsion but willingly. So church leaders should do these two things willingly, not under compulsion. So think about this time period. We've talked about the persecution. We've talked about the suffering. If the body of Christ, if Christians are being persecuted, think about how much leaders are being persecuted even more, right? Because they're the leaders of the church. And so I'm sure during this time it was very difficult to be an elder just because of the, the persecution that came with that. And even today, pastors and leaders of the church, it's difficult. It's really difficult. Um, the suicide rate is really high among pastors. There's a lot of depression and anxiety that comes with it. You know, we are messy people, and to, to be involved in our lives and try to lead us through it is hard. And so here, Peter is saying to these leaders, listen, do it willingly, not under compulsion. Have you ever been somewhere, like maybe a restaurant, and the waitress or the waiter or one of the workers just seemed like they really didn't want to be there? Like, you know that they don't like their job, they're just there for a paycheck, and they're just miserable. Um, that's leading under compulsion. That's doing something under compulsion and not willingly. So for the elders, if you feel called by God to do that, don't just do it because, okay, I'm called by God. You should do it willingly and with passion, even in the face of hard times. And so that's what Peter is encouraging the elders here, to do it with joy, to stay the course. It's hard. It's difficult to be an elder. It's difficult to lead in the face of a lot of crazy circumstances. It's difficult to lead messy people, but do it willingly, do it with joy, not just because you feel like you have to. The second, the second exhortation to give, he gives to elders as they carry out the duties is to do this not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We definitely have some pastors who are in it for the money, right? You've seen these guys on TV or whatever the case may be. They they are pastors because they want to become rich. Right here, it's very clear that you are not to be a church leader for shameful gain, which is for riches. Um, it's, it's, it's not, the motives are not pure when you do that. And, uh, I mean, that's the prosperity gospel. Hey, you do what I say, I'm going to make you rich. Well, God will give us riches, but it might not be the financial ones here on earth. Um, so, you should, so church leaders should never seek leadership for material gain should never do that. Now, this leads to the question, should pastors be paid? 
Absolutely. Pastors should definitely be paid. We see that in the New Testament. We cannot expect our pastors and leaders to lead without being paid. So you know what, Matthew? You definitely should be paid as a pastor. Um, but we know that Matthew's a great example. Like, he, he's not doing this to become rich. He's, he's doing it because he knows God's called him to do it, and we have to take care of him as a body of Christ. So pastors and elders should be leaders um, out of a sense of calling, not out of a sense of selfishness, and not out of a sense of material gain. And then the third thing, see in verse 3, this is the third exhortation. Uh, elders should lead by example, not domineering. By example and not domineering. Um, I know that for me personally, I have a lot easier time following someone who leads by example as opposed to someone who just kind of like gives me orders. Um, I'm sure you've seen people who say, hey, do as I say, not as I do. That is not what elders and church leaders are called to do. They're called to lead by example, and we have the perfect example of that in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, was God in flesh, and he, king of the world, and he came to earth, and he dined with sinners. He washed the feet of his disciples. He touched and healed people who had diseases that no one else would even be around those people. Jesus is the ultimate example of how to lead by example and not in a domineering way. Um, Jesus is the ultimate servant leader. And church leaders should never ask their people, the congregations, the body of Christ, to do something that they themselves would not be willing to do. Um, and we, like I said, we see this with Jesus. And this is so countercultural. Why would anyone lead like this in our world today? We see politicians who lead and make decisions to give themselves more power so that they can have a higher position, more authority. We see business leaders who make decisions on, in a way that brings them the most financial gain, um, the most material wealth. So why, would, why does it make sense for us to lead in this way that basically elevates Jesus and lowers ourselves? We see the answer to that in verse 4. It says, and when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He says, elders, lead in this way, and when the chief shepherd, when Jesus appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown of glory is just that, it's unfading. Riches, they go away. Can't take money with you to the grave. Possessions go away. Power, it fades away eventually, it erodes. But the unfading crown of glory, the ultimate reward, Jesus Christ, it never fades. It never goes away. And it's worth it to lead in that way. So I know you might say, not an elder, I'm not going to be an elder, but it's important for all of us as a body of Christ to know what's expected of elders. So that's what Peter addresses here. So now it's going to talk to the rest of us here in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I'll stop right there. Likewise, in the same way as the elders, in the same way that the elders are called to lead with humility, you who are younger, you who are under the elders, should be subject to the elders. Now, I know at least for me, uh, authority can be difficult sometimes. I'm sort of a rebel. I like to do my own thing. But here we're instructed to be subject to the leaders of the church. Now, there's a fine line here. What Peter is not saying is if the leaders are leading in sin or if the leaders are not following the instructions that I gave him here, them here, you should, you should follow them. No, we're to follow the leaders who are following God, who are seeking Christ. And we are very blessed in our church that I can say confidently that our elders are doing that. Um, I think about COVID-19. I know you hear it all the time. 
affects what, what we're dealing with in our world. But pastors and elders have a really, really tough job right now. You know, they want to care. They want to shepherd the flock. How do they do that? Um, how, did the, how does a pastor shepherd the flock uh, during COVID-19 whenever there's just so much going on? Should we meet? Should we not meet? What should we do? What should we not do? We have a mandate to meet together. We have a mandate to be in community, but we want to care for and we want to love other people. And so this is what I would say to you, and this is my encouragement. I trust that our leaders at Origins are doing their very best to make the best decision possible. Let's support that. Let's support that decision. Um, Let's not cause division during this time. Let's be subject to their leadership and trust that they're seeking God and that they have our best interest in mind. It's hard to do that, but that's what we have to do. Um, And then the next part of verse 5 says this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is, a really interesting, this is a really interesting phrase, because it's one of the only times in the New Testament we see this, this phrase in the Greek, clothe yourselves. And in the Greek, it literally means to tie yourself up. And so the readers of this letter originally would have likely understood that this was, this was referring to a type of slave garment, a type of cloak that slaves wore. And so literally, Peter is saying, put on the garment that a slave would put on. That is the utmost form of humility right there. Who, who, who in their right mind would willingly put that on? Who in their right mind would willingly put the garment of a slave on of that type of humility? That's what he's calling us to do here. Uh, there's a pastor and a author named Matt Smith Hurst, and he, he has a quote, and it says, Once, one sign you've encountered God is you walk with a limp, not a strut. As Christians... We are to walk with a limp, not a strut, because we know where we've been. We know where God has brought us, and we know that we can't boast in ourselves. It's only in Christ, and so we're to walk with a limp. Um, those who are humble are more like Christ than those who are arrogant. I, I've seen that in people I know. I don't know about you, but when I'm around someone who I say, man, that person has been with Jesus, they're humble almost, all, almost always. Um, and the last part of verse 5 is, is sort of scary. Um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but that, to me that's one of the most frightening verses in the whole Bible because the idea that God, who is sovereign, who's the creator of the entire earth, could be opposed to me, it's just very scary. So it's, it's a strong instruction. God opposes, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, John 3.30 it's one of my favorite verses. It says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's ultimate humility, is, putting our, is lowering ourselves so that Christ can be exalted above all. And so, as we walk through life, let's ask ourselves that question. Is what I'm doing to further my kingdom, or is what I'm doing to further God's kingdom? That's the ultimate, that's the ultimate question, the ultimate test of humility. Is what I'm doing right now, to further my kingdom or to further God's kingdom? I hope that we can answer that it's to further God's kingdom more than it's to further our kingdom. Um, so that, that's hard, right? To live in that way is really hard. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to live in a way to lower themselves? It is so opposite to our flesh, to our sinful desires, to our culture. Why? The answer is in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We humble ourselves now 
but there's a reward to come for that. We're exalted later. There is a reason. Um, humility now, but exaltation to come. The re- a great reward awaits for, the, for those of us who are faithful. Let's look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I love this verse. So casting, that's a modifier, right? That's referring to the last verse. So we live humbly by casting our anxieties on the Lord. We live humbly by casting our anxieties on the Lord. Pride is thinking that we can solve our own problems. But humility is realizing that we can't and trusting that God can. I'll say that again. Pride is thinking that we can solve our own problems, but humility is realizing that we can't and trusting that God can. We live in a, we live in a time of so much anxiety. Um, I know for myself personally, it's something I struggle with is anxiety. Um, it's, you know, COVID-19, what's going you know, to happen? Am I going to get sick? Um, what's going to happen to my job? Am I going to lose my job because of COVID-19? Well, what am I going to do if I lose my job? Uh, what if one of my family members gets sick and they, you know, and something really unfortunate happens. Um, you know, Lexi's a teacher. I've, I think, man, she's going to be in the classroom with all those kids. What happens if she gets COVID-19? We live in a time with so much anxiety um, in this world, and it can consume us. But we see right here that God cares for us. We cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Even the small details of our life, he cares about them. And that's just a really powerful thing. So this is my challenge in this area is to let your anxiety lead to worship. You might ask, how can I let my anxiety lead to worship? Well, this is how you do it. You pray to God when you have a problem, and you acknowledge that, hey, God, I cannot solve this problem on my own. I can't. And then you lay that problem at the foot of the cross, and you trust that God can handle it. You pray and acknowledge that you cannot handle the problem and you lay that problem at the foot of the cross, and you trust that God can. And that right there is an act of worship. Because what you've just done is you've lowered yourself in humility, and you've raised Christ by trusting that he can solve your problem and by exercising faith in your life. And, uh, man, this is something that I have a hard time with and that I've been trying to practice in my life for sure. Um, But when we let our anxiety lead to worship, then we exalt God and we lower ourselves. And that's what, that's what we're called to do right here uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Why does a lion roar? A lion roars to scare, right? To frighten. And so Satan looks to consume us with fear. He looks to devour us with fear and anxiety. Um, you know, it's scary. It's a scary time. Uh, and Satan is looking to devour us with that fear and with that anxiety. But verse 9 says this, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. How do we resist Satan? By being firm in our faith. We can't just say that we have faith. We have to live it out in order for it to be true. And if we're letting fear and anxiety consume us, then we're not living out in faith. We're living in a, in a state of fear, which is allowing Satan to devour us. So we, we resist Satan by having faith, but we also resist Satan in community, which is what the rest of that verse says. Knowing that your brotherhood throughout the world is experiencing the same thing. 
the same kind of suffering, the same kind of fears, the same kind of anxieties. Community is what helps us resist the devil. Um, if you have been through something really challenging as a Christian, you should, and you've come through that, and you've seen the Lord work in your life, you should definitely use that to encourage other people who are in that same situation that you were once in. That's community at work. If you've been through something, and you're just quiet about it, or you don't share about it, or you don't encourage others, it's a waste. God brought you through that for a reason. He wants you to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ, and we do that in community. Verse 10 and 11 is kind of what draws this all together, and it is, I think it just puts a perfect ending to this entire book, into this entire series we've went through, Hope for the Scattered. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So is the Christian life worth the cost? That's the ultimate question that we're trying to answer. Yes. God's presence is our reward. Unending joy is our reward. Um, Jesus is greater than any persecution. Jesus is greater than any sacrifice. Jesus is greater than any trial that we could ever experience in our lives. I promise you that. A few weeks ago, uh, Matt preached on this, this passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. I'm going to read that. It says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your fate, the salvation of your souls. So the outcome of fate is inexpressible joy. The outcome of our faith is inexpressible joy. The sacrifice is worth the reward. I think often God brings me back to this time in my life, and I remember this very clearly. Um, there was a time, I'm a very task-oriented person. So what that means is, like, I'm good at checking off boxes. I'm good at getting things done. And sometimes it makes it challenging. One time somebody asked me a question, and you can think about this yourself, how you would answer this question. If you're in a room, and it's a big ballroom, and there's a party going on, or it's like a banquet or reception, and someone tells you, hey, I, I need you to take the trash out, and the trash is on the other side of the room. So you have to walk through the crowd of people to go take the trash out. What are you going to do? Are you going to walk straight to the trash with your head down, avoiding eye contact, not talking to anybody so you can get the trash out? Or are you going to walk through the crowd, talk to everybody, and eventually, an hour later, take the trash out? For me, I'm, my head's straight to the ground. I don't want to talk to anybody. Don't look at me. i got to get the trash out. If you try to talk to me, I'm going to be distracted. I'm not going to be able to have a real conversation because I'm going to be worried about getting the trash out. So that, that just tells you a little bit about me. I'm very task-oriented. So anyway, all that to say, I think about this time in my life where um, I was at this worship service, and I had somewhere to be. So like I had, at this time, I had to leave to go to this other meeting that I was supposed to be at. And so I'm sitting there, and I feel the presence of God. Like, I'm worshiping. It's just amazing. And I look at my watch, and I'm like, it's time to go. And then like the Holy Spirit spoke to me right there, and it's like, no, you're staying. There is nothing greater than my presence. There is nothing greater than experience in my presence. 
And at that moment, I could not leave. I was not going to leave. There's nothing in the world that was better than that. There's nothing that I could go, that meeting that I was going to, no way it could ever live up to being, just feeling the presence of the Lord in that moment of worship. And so that's the reward. That's the reward is joy unending in eternity with Jesus, with no distractions. In eternity, there's no sin. There's no distractions. We are with Jesus face-to-face worshiping him. I cannot imagine a greater joy than that. There is the ultimate sacrifice. Even death is worth it, is worth that reward. Um, Peter makes it so clear, and so I want you to look. So what we just talked about. At first, he talks about elders and how to lead, to lead selflessly. Why? Well, look at verse 4. Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Lead selflessly because you're going to receive the unfading crown of glory. Next, he says, live humbly. We are called to a life of humility. Why should I live humbly? Look at verse 6. You live humbly because at the proper time, he may exalt you. The proper time, he may exalt you. Then he says, resist the devil. That's hard. Resisting the devil is hard. It is so much easier to give in to temptation than it is to resist it. It is so much easier to give into temptation than it is to resist it. But why? Why? Because look at verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us whenever we live sacrificially for him. He'll do it. So yes, the Christian life is worth it. There is a reward. Now this leads to a question that I've thought to myself for a long time. Is it selfish or wrong to live the Christian life in light of a reward to come? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we, live, the, shouldn't we live the Christian life just because of what Jesus did for us and his love for us, not just because there's a reward in store for those who live the Christian life? Well, I want, to argue, I want to argue that it is not selfish to do that. It's not selfish to live in light of a future reward. I'll, and let me tell you why I think that. John Piper, I don't know if any of you have ever listened to him. He can, he's really smart, and I would probably discourage a lot of you from reading his books, just because at least for me, I read it and I'm like, I don't know what he just said, and I'm really confused, and now I have, I don't know. But he has this quote, and it's really good. And this is something that if you've ever listened to him, you may have heard him say it because he says it a lot, but it's this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, okay? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So I want you to think about that in light of what we just talked about. If God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, then when God rewards us, he doesn't do it for us. He does it for his own glory, because when, when he rewards us and we experience that joy, we're satisfied in him and he's glorified. It is not selfish to live in light of a reward because the reward is glorifying to God and it brings him glory. Uh, a few weeks ago, Matthew preached in chapter 3. and there's a, In chapter 3, verse 15, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, but, but Peter says, Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope within. And we talked about that. This is the second reason why it's not selfish to live in light of a reward. As Christians, we have the Great Commission. The Great Commission calls us to share the gospel with others. When we, when we desire and live our lives to bring others with us into that reward, it's no longer selfish because we want others to come with us. 
We don't want to keep it to ourselves. We want others to come with us into that eternal joy. So it's not selfish to live in light of a reward. The Christian life is worth the cost. Jesus is worthy of our lives. The joy we find in him is greater than any joy or pleasure we could experience on earth. The joy of, of, of Jesus, of his presence, is greater than anything that we could experience. It's greater than any persecution that we could experience. Uh, it's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. It's greater than any material possession we could get. It's greater than any power or authority that we could get to build ourselves up here on earth. His joy is worth it. So I want to end with this. To the Christian, to, to, you, to you who are Christians here, who already know Christ, my encouragement to you is to stay the course. It gets hard sometimes. It's difficult. It's challenging to try to be, it's challenging to live a life of holiness. It's challenging to face persecution. It's challenging, but it's worth it. And to those who aren't Christians, maybe you're counting the cost. Maybe you have been thinking about it and thought, man, I can't do that. It's too hard. It's not worth it. I want to, I want to, I want to encourage you this. It is worth it. It is worth the cost. The eternal joy of knowing Jesus is worth any cost, even to the point of death. We don't, we don't have to fear our lives as Christians in America, but some people around the world do. It's worth the cost. I want to leave you with this last verse. It should be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Paul says, That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When we are weak, when we lower ourselves and we exalt Christ, that's when we're strong. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much um, for your word, Lord. Thank you so much that, Father, we have encouragement to live the Christian life, Lord. Father, I just pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, Lord, that we would be steadfast in our faith. Father, that we would trust you and that we would live our lives for the ultimate reward, which is your presence and joy that never ends. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.